And the word is made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. As the great uh, Benedictine Dom Garanger points out on Christmas, during the three Masses, we celebrate three different aspects of our Lord's birth. At midnight uh, Mass, we celebrate his birth by the Blessed Virgin Mary in the stable in Bethlehem. At the Mass at dawn, we celebrate his birth by grace in the hearts of the shepherds. And now, at the Mass of the day, we celebrate the fact that he's eternally begotten of the Father. Now, on that note, I would just want to read you something. It's kind of a syndicated column or whatever, but it's a question-answer column. So bear with me. The question is, did Jesus exist before his earthly birth? Dear Padre, I want to know if Jesus did, in fact, exist before his earthly birth. I realize nothing is impossible with God, but this certainly adds to the mystery. Okay, so that's the question. Here's the answer. Uh, dear Tony, Jesus explains his relationship with God the Father in John 14, 10, and 11. We asked Philip, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me. But how did Jesus exist before he was born of the Virgin Mary? Origen, one of the early church fathers, said, well, he's an early church writer, there was, that there was never a time when he did not exist as to be taken with a certain allowance. For these very words, when and never, are terms of temporal significance. Well, whatever is said of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to be understood as transcending all times, all ages, and all eternity. Jesus was physically born to this world, and Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully divine. We cannot equate Jesus' birth with our birth. Jesus transcends the limits of time and space. So how did Jesus exist before his birth? We cannot know. Is that part of the mystery? It most certainly is. Close. Well, if you understood that, you're doing better than me. It's, it's whacked. If anybody did understand that, you can, you can come and talk to me. But first off, the scripture quote, obviously it's true, but it, talk about vague. If you're going to quote the scriptures, you'd, you'd quote the first one right here and then a few other things. I don't want to go through the whole thing. We'll talk about it. But it, we can't understand to a degree. We can't comprehend, but we can understand. The point of the church is to explain these things. It's not a mystery without a clue. We're going to talk about this stuff. So this morning we'll take a closer look at answering these very questions. Okay, the reality that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. We'll take a closer look at the true, at the two great mysteries that are contained in that fact. And they're described in this beautiful prologue of St. John's Gospel that we read for the Gospel today. We read ordinarily, it's the last Gospel at every Mass, okay? The two mysteries we're going to take some time to look at are the mysteries of the Most Holy Trinity, okay? And the mystery, the Incarnation. So that's a lot to do, and we're going to try to pack both those into one sermon here. And, uh, and, and I'm not going to keep you here all day. So, and, and on the Trinity, we have a whole semester course in seminary, and by the time you're done, you're only in a more luminous darkness. So we're going to take a whole semester course, which still isn't covering it. We're going to put that in just a couple minutes. We're going to lean really heavily on Frank Sheed right here because he's so clear. But, uh, I mean, I've chopped and spliced. Anyway. In order to tackle these topics, we have to uh, review the meaning of three words. We've talked about this before. But a mystery, because what we mean by a mystery is not the same thing as what the church means, what we mean when we use it in common, ordinary speech. Mystery, nature, and person. So mystery. A mystery of our faith is something God wants us to think about. 
but it's not, it's something we can never fully understand. It doesn't mean like a mystery without a clue, like some, and, and then we put it all together and bang, we've got it, like some detective mystery. No. A mystery is something we can never fully understand. We can keep thinking about it and get more and more insights, but even if we think about it for all eternity, we'll never be able to fully exhaust it, okay? A mystery of our faith, like the Trinity or the Incarnation, is an inexhaustible truth that we can be thinking about forever and ever, and get more and more details, but still never get it all. That's what we mean by mystery. Okay, second, nature. Nature. We've used this example before. But imagine you're, you're, you're camping out late night in, in the woods in a cabin somewhere, and you hear a loud crashing noise. You wonder, what was that? Is that a tree falling? Is that a mountain lion? Is that a grizzly bear? Is it a wolf? What is that? When you're asking the question, what, you're asking a question about natures. Nature is a philosophical term. Nature. When we're asked the question what, it's a question about nature. It's the whatness of something. Fish have fish nature. They act in a certain way. They swim and breathe water, okay? Birds have bird nature. They have feathers. They lay eggs. Men have human nature. It means we have a body and an immortal soul, okay? So we can walk and talk and laugh and think and hear and so forth, okay? In ordinary language, nature answers the question, what is it? What is it? And it also answers the question, what can it do? So nature, what is it? What can it do? That's what we mean by nature. Person, we're in that cabin in the woods. We hear a knock on the door. You don't go, what's that? Is that a tree? Is that a mountain lion, a bear? Nobody says that. You say, who's there? It's a completely different question. We already have an idea. We've narrowed down the nature. That's why it's creepy if you open the door and there's nobody there. You don't see anybody. That's why it'd be shocking, you know. Somebody's knocking on the door. You say, who's there? Who's there? Not what's that? Because we already know we're dealing with someone with a human nature right there when we hear somebody knocking at the door. When we ask the question who, we're asking a question about a person. A nature determines what something is and what it can do, but a person, that's who's knocking. That's who's doing a particular thing. Take an example. What are we? We've all got human nature. That means we have a body and immortal soul, but we're all different persons. I'm a different person than you. Who's talking? I'm talking. Who's listening? Well, hopefully you are. But, uh, so, so those are, we have a nature, so it gives us the ability to talk and to listen and to think and so forth, but your nature doesn't do anything. You do something. That's the person, okay? One other important point, okay? Uh, persons have rational natures. Persons have a rational nature. That means persons can know and love. Persons can know and love. There's three kinds of persons. There are human persons. We can know and love. There are angelic persons. They can know and love. And there are divine persons, okay? Human, angelic, divine persons. So nature tells us what is it, what can it do. Person tells us who is it, who's doing it, okay? Again, nature tells us what is it, what can it do. Person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. Remember, a mystery is some kind of inexhaustible truth of our religion that we can never completely understand, but we can keep drawing more and more out of as we meditate on it. Even if, please God, we get to heaven, we can keep contemplating. Okay, that's the review. Let's get started. The first mystery, the mystery of the most holy trinity. We heard in today's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. St. John the Apostle is writing about the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity there. Now, we look at this every Trinity Sunday, but since it's the central mystery of our faith, it bears another look. Plato had two excellent questions. He wondered if there's one God, what would he think about? And if there's one God, whom does he love? What does God think about? And who does he love? First, what does God think about? God has an idea. 
but he only has one idea. He already knows everything. He isn't going to forget anything. He's God. He knows everything. He isn't going to forget anything. He isn't going to learn anything. He has one idea. He only has one idea. It can never change. It is an eternal, unchanging idea. He certainly isn't going to learn anything. He certainly isn't going to forget anything. God is infinite. That's a fancy word which means no limits. No limits whatsoever. Which means he's the only infinite being that is or that can be. There can't be two limitless beings. One would be a limit on the other. Now you can think about that later. We want to keep track of this. Keep track where we're going or get lost here. Okay. Anyway, God is infinite and he has an infinite intellect. Now the only thing that an infinite mind could find that would even be worth thinking about is the infinite being. What does that mean? It means that the idea that God has in his infinite mind is the idea he has of himself. It can't change. His idea is as eternal as he is. He didn't suddenly think of it. Not like our ideas. It doesn't change. Our ideas roll along. We call it discursive reasoning. His doesn't. Here's another extraordinary thing. The idea that God has of himself must be absolutely perfect. Why? Because he knows everything. What does that mean? That means that whatever is in God must also be in his idea. Whatever is in God must be in his idea of himself. Whatever is in God's idea of himself must be absolutely and exactly the same as it is in himself. Otherwise, he would not have a clear idea of himself. That's contradictory, okay? Since he's God, he knows everything. Whatever's in God must be in his idea of himself, and it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself. Okay? Whatever's in God must be in his idea of himself, and it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself. Otherwise, God wouldn't know everything about himself, which is impossible. Now, that's so much different than our kind of ideas, it's impossible to imagine. But we don't want to worry whether we can imagine it. We can understand things without being able to imagine them perfectly. Parenthetical remark. It's like in geometry, when you're a kid, seventh grade, you, you start learning whatever age you are, you start learning about geometric points. You can keep sharpening that pencil as sharp as you want. No matter what you do, when you put a little dot on the paper, it's going to have some spread. You can't imagine. That's a picture. You can't imagine a dot, a point with no spread, but you can understand it. And our intellects can understand spiritual things, but our imagination can't help making material pictures. So you're going to make pictures of God. You can't help that, but they're wrong. Don't worry about that. Our imagination is for dealing with the material world. God is pure spirit. When you make a picture of something spiritual, don't let it confuse you. It doesn't mean it's bad to have a picture. Just don't let it confuse you. It's just the same when you finally realize, all right, it doesn't matter how sharp I make the point, that's never going to be a geometric point. I know what a geometric point is, but I can't make a picture of it. I can't help having, I have a little black dot in my head anytime I think about a point, but I know that it doesn't have any spread. Okay, back to this. All right, God, whatever's in God must be in his idea of himself, and it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't know everything about himself, okay? Now it gets even more interesting. Any idea that we might have is a thing. Our ideas are things, okay? Our idea of truth is a thing. Our idea of justice is a thing. That's not true with God. Why not? Well, because whatever's in God must be in his idea of himself. And such it must, since it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself, 
That means that since God can know in love, his idea can know in love. Since God can know in love, his idea can know in love. In other words, his idea is not a thing. Things can't know in love. Persons can know in love. His idea of himself is a person. There's more. Ideas don't just float off in space somewhere, huh? They don't just drift off out of your mind and go floating around outside the thinker. A thought is in the mind of the thinker. So this one idea of God has to be in the same identical nature as the thinker. Okay? So God's idea of himself is a person, but it's in the same nature. What does that mean? It means that God conceives within his own infinite nature a perfect, infinite idea, which because it is an idea, is completely within his nature. And because it's a perfect idea of himself, completely contains his nature. And his idea, God's idea of himself, is an eternal, unchanging idea. It's an eternal, unchanging word. The thinker is the first person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Father. And the idea, the word, is the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Son. So what does God think about? He thinks about himself. Pause for a sec. When God wants to know what you or I are doing, he doesn't, it's not like he does some, like in the cartoons, you know, opens up heaven, looks down through the clouds and says, you know, what's Father Wolf doing right now? He looks at himself. He knows everything. He knows in himself what I'm doing. He looks at himself to figure out what I'm doing. He looks at himself to figure out what you're doing. It's dramatically different than us. If I want to know what you're doing, I have to look over and say, what are you doing right now? Now with God, he looks at himself. Okay, back to, what does God think about? He thinks about himself. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. All right, so God thinks about himself, but whom does he love? When we have a beautiful idea, we can admire it, we can dwell on it, we can even love it, but still it's only an idea. It's only a thing. It's something we've conceived. We can love it, but our idea can't return our love. God's idea of himself, the eternal Word, is not something, but it's someone. The eternal Word is a person. The idea is a person, the second person, the most holy trinity. Just as God is absolutely, infinitely perfect and worthy of all love, so also his idea is absolutely and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love. And so the thinker, the father, and the word, the son, love each other with a perfect and infinite love. Each person pours himself out totally towards other, holding nothing back. And this love that the father and the son have for each other is eternal. It's unchanging. It's infinite, has every perfection they do. It's a person, someone. It's the third person, the most holy trinity. Of course, the love that the Father and the Son have for one another, since it's infinite, totally fills their whole nature, producing a third person from all eternity. But again, this person is within the same divine nature. So the second person, the Word, the Son, proceeds from the Father and is generated by way of the intellect, and the third person, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son by an act of the will. One divine nature expressed totally as thinker, expressed totally as word, expressed totally as love. Three divine persons, one divine nature. What are you? It's a question about nature. God. Who are you? A question about person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but not three separate persons. Three distinct persons, but not three separate persons. These three distinct persons, the divine persons, do not share the divine nature. They don't share the divine nature. Each one possesses it totally. The Father possesses it totally. The Son possesses it totally. The Holy Spirit possesses it totally. All right? 
Remember, a mystery is an inexhaustible truth that we can never completely understand, but we can keep drawing more and more out as we contemplate it, all right? Nature tells us what is it, what can it do. person tells us who is it, who's doing it. God's idea, the eternal word, is a person. Just as God is absolutely and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love, so also his idea is absolutely, infinitely perfect and worthy of all love. And so the Father and his idea, the Word, the Son, love each other with this perfect and infinite love. Each person pours himself totally out towards the other, holding nothing back. And this love that the Father and the Son have for each other is eternal, unchanging, infinite person, the Holy Ghost, the third person, the most blessed Trinity. The third person, the Word, the Son, proceeds from the Father, generated by way of the intellect. The, the, the second person, the third person, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son by way of the will. God is three distinct divine persons, but not three separate persons. These three divine persons do not share the divine nature. Each one possesses it totally. The Father possesses it totally. The Son possesses it totally. The Holy Ghost possesses it totally. Don't worry if you can't picture it. Our imaginations can't make a picture of it. The blessed in heaven contemplate it. That's what the divine, that's what, when you get the beatific vision, please God, get the beatific vision in heaven, you get to contemplate the most blessed trinity, but we'll never be able to comprehend it. We're talking about something infinite. We have finite intellects. Okay. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to know about it and think about it. God revealed it to us so that we'd think about this mystery. Okay, second mystery is the incarnation. Now we've seen that the Word is the second person of the most blessed Trinity, the Son, just as we heard in today's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was met with God, and the Word was God. Now also, we heard today also in the Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's take a closer look at this. The Word became flesh. The Word became a man. Who became a man? Who? Remember when we asked the question, who? We're asking a question about a person. Who became man? A divine person. A divine person, the Word. The second person, the most blessed eternity. God, the Son, became man. God became man. That means he took upon himself human nature, which means he took a body and a soul. So when we're speaking of the incarnate Word, we're speaking of one person, a divine person, who has two natures. As eternal Word from all eternity... He always had a divine nature. And then when he became flesh, he took up another nature, a human nature, a body, and a soul. So from all eternity, he always had the divine nature. And in time, at the moment of the incarnation, at the Annunciation, he, be, he took on a human nature, body, and soul. And, of course, it's revealed on Christmas, the, the moment of, the birth, of his birth. Okay, our little Lord Jesus is one person, a divine person, the second person, the most blessed Trinity, with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So if he asked, if we asked him, who are you, he'd have one answer, God the Son, okay? But if we asked, what are you, he'd have two answers. He's God and he's man, okay? So our Lord has one who and two what's. One who and two what's. He's the one person with two natures. He's a divine person with a divine nature and human nature. He's true God and true man. Remember that nature also determines what we can do. Since the person is the one doing it, his nature enables him to do whatever he's doing. Our little Lord Jesus has two sources of action. Since he has a divine nature, he can do everything that belongs with being God. Since he has a human nature, he can do everything that goes along with being a man. But in either case, it's only one person that's doing these things, and that person is God. So who was born in the stable? God the Son. Who's laying in the manger? God the Son. Who's married the mother of? God the Son. 
Who are the angels singing about? God the Son. Who do the shepherds come to see? God the Son. The Word became flesh. Quick review, and then we'll close. We've seen nature tells us what is it, what can it do. We've seen person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. We've taken a brief look at the two central mysteries of our religion, the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity and the mystery of the Incarnation. We look at the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. We've seen that God's idea of himself, the eternal word, is a person. And we've seen that just as God is absolutely, infinitely perfect and worthy of all love, so also his idea is absolutely and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love. And so the Father... And his idea, the word, the son, love each other with a perfect and infinite love. Each person pours himself out totally towards the other, holding nothing back. And this love that the father and son have for each other is eternal, unchanging, infinite person, the Holy Spirit, the third person, of the most blessed trinity. The second person, the word, the son, proceeds from the father and is generated by way of the intellect. The third person, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the father and the son by way of the will. God is three distinct divine persons, but not three separate persons. These three divine persons do not share the divine nature. Each person possesses it totally. The Father possesses it totally. The Son possesses it totally. The Holy Spirit possesses it totally. When we looked at the mystery of the Incarnation, we've seen that the second person, the most blessed Trinity, became man. They took upon himself a human nature, body and soul. We've seen when we speak of the incarnate word, we're speaking of one divine person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. We've seen if our Lord were asked, who are you? He'd have one answer, God the Son. If we were asked, what are you? He'd have two answers, I'm God and I'm man, because he has two natures. He's one person with two natures, true God and true man. This means that everything our little Lord Jesus does, he has two sources of action for anything he does. Because of his divine nature, he can do everything that goes along with being God, creating the world, holding things in existence. Because of his human nature, he can do everything that goes along with being a man. But in either case, it's only one person that's doing these things, and that person is God. So we looked at the who and what of today's feast. Let's close with taking a quick look at when, where, and why. When, in the fullness of time, 752nd year from the foundation of the city of Rome, 42nd year of the rule of Augustus, on a cold December night, December 25th, year 1 AD. Where? In a stable outside Bethlehem. Why? Why would God become a man? Why did the word become flesh? St. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. St. John Chrysostom says, there's no other cause for the incarnation than this. God saw us fallen, abject, oppressed by the tyranny of death, and he had mercy. St. John said, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. For God sent not his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved by him. Our Lord himself said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. So why did God become a man? Because he loves us, and he wanted to save us. A religion is a story of a love affair. It's a story of a love affair. God loved us first. And we don't deserve it.